0: Well, greetings. My name is John Perrine. I'm the pastoral resident at Church of the Resurrection, uh, getting ready, preparing myself to do some church planting, and I've had the privilege of being with you a couple times this last year, and it is my privilege to be with you again this second Sunday of Easter as we're diving into 1 Peter and this question of what resilient faith in urban soil looks like. So to begin, uh, I have a Story of a trip my wife and I went on recently. We recently got to go to Yellowstone National Park. If you've never been, it's amazing out there. And this one day in particular, we were in Yellowstone uh, on a sort of guided tour bus experience. And there was a park ranger who was telling us stories as we went through the park, kind of following the Yellowstone River. And this ranger had an interesting story of a summer quite a few years ago, 1988 where Yellowstone had just begun exploring experimental science at the time that was starting to find that if you started small, controlled fires, it actually was a good thing for the forest. So this is pretty common knowledge now. You might even see people out in the prairies, in the suburbs, where I'm at, uh, starting small fires every now and then. But in Yellowstone, they were just starting to experiment with this, and they thought, okay, we're going to start a couple small, contained fires on one side of the Yellowstone River to kind of clear away some brush, and yet this particular summer, 1988, was immensely dry, so little rain, and whoever missed the cue that dry season would not be good to start lots of small controlled fires, uh, probably was let go later, but this summer in particular, they started these small controlled fires, and as you can only imagine, unfortunately, things started to get out of control. The fires actually started raging and burning. They started merging. They started growing, and yet the rangers were convinced, our guide was telling us, that no fire had ever jumped a river, the Yellowstone River particularly. This river is about 20 to 25 feet across, and so the rangers, as they watched the fire growing, they said, it's going to be okay because no fire could ever jump a river the size of Yellowstone River, and yet to their dismay, And to their fascination, they watched as the fire slowly closed in and did this miraculous thing of jumping 25 feet to catch blaze, not only on one side, but on the other side of the river. And before they knew it, the tragic and devastating fire of 1988 in Yellowstone Park took out most of the trees and caused about $150 million of damage. So as our ranger's telling us this story... The ranger looks at us and just said something that I think is interesting for us this morning. He sort of paused dramatically and said, You know, that summer, 1988, we rangers learned that there's no such thing as a controlled fire. There's no such thing as a controlled fire. And so this morning, as we look at 1 Peter, I'm intrigued that Peter sees writing to these Exiles, these people wandering the land who have been chosen by God, who have been called by God, who have been chosen in Christ, Peter wants to capture our attention with a vision of holiness. And yet, as we go to approach the holiness of God this morning, I'm curious if some of us, like those rangers, aren't at times uh, sort of thinking to ourselves that the holiness of God might be a fire we can control. And if some of us this morning as we approach First Peter aren't in need of this invitation from Peter to realize that the holiness of God is not a controllable fire. So turn with me to your bulletins or your Bibles, First Peter. Look with me at verse 14. Peter's going to say, As obedient children... Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So if we're going to have this encounter with the uncontrollable holiness of God, I think we first have to start with the question, what does it mean that God is holy? What does it mean that God is holy? A recent study by the Barna Group, Uh, asked a bunch of people what holiness meant. I thought it was kind of interesting. The Barna Group summarized that the concept of holiness baffles most Americans. (laughs) Seems a little bit of an understatement. When asked to describe what it means to be holy, the most common reply Barna Group found was, I don't know. (laughs) Fair enough. Those identified as born again, only 46% believed God had called them to holiness. Study concluded, the result portrays a body of Christians who attend church and read the Bible, but do not understand the concept or significance of holiness, do not personally desire to be holy, and therefore do little, if anything, to pursue it, holiness. Holiness is a strange and often perplexing word, particularly because, I think, for many of us, God would be far more desirable as a close friend or companion, right? I don't know about you, but when I kind of go to the picture of God I would prefer, it's something kind of like Morgan Freeman, maybe like offering a gentle narration to my life. Or perhaps for you, it might be like Oprah, sitting across the table with a cup of coffee, sort of listening intently to you, nodding, offering you occasional sagely advice. However, if we turn to the scriptures, God is far less often portrayed as a friend or gentle companion and is instead at times declared to be an all-consuming fire. There's actually this great verse in Hebrews that's echoing the book of Deuteronomy where the author of Hebrews says in uh, chapter 12, verse 29, For do you not know that the Lord our God is an all-consuming fire? I think if we're going to approach the word holiness— I think we need to lean into this image, this powerful, majestic, splendid image of God's holiness as an all-consuming fire. If you look through the scriptures, again and again, this image of God's holiness as an all-consuming fire sort of gets at some of the terrified response that people have when they encounter God and his holiness. Uh, Some people cower and tremble. Others go mute. Some who manage speech, often find themselves falling into despair. One writer I came across on holiness says, fainters abound in the scriptures when it comes to the holiness of God. Take the prophet Daniel. Daniel could stare down lions, but when the heavens opened, he swooned. Ezekiel, too, was overwhelmed by his vision of God. After witnessing Yahweh's throne chariot lift into the air with the sound of a jet engine, Ezekiel is going to fall flat on the ground. Uh, New Testament types fared a little better. John, in uh, the book of Revelation, describes himself after seeing God lying flat on the ground as though one dead <laughs> in Revelation 1.17. Disciples drop when Jesus is transfigured. Even the intrepid Saul marching resolutely to Damascus is going to collapse before the blazing brilliance of Christ that he encounters. Yet if there's one story in the Old Testament that I think really captures this encounter with the all-consuming fire of the holiness of God, it would be in the book of Isaiah. So you've perhaps heard this story before, but I want to read it to you from Isaiah 6. It says, In the year that King Uzzah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. With two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. I think seraphim alone would make most mortals tremble. The word seraphim actually means fiery or flaming, burning ones. And as Isaiah is witnessing not only these seraphim trembling a temple with the cries of the holiness of God, but the train of God himself sitting on his throne, Isaiah has only one way he can possibly respond. If you look at verse 5, Woe to me, I am ruined for I am a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the king the Lord almighty it's interesting that one commentator points out the angels do very little to assuage Isaiah's fears the angels don't come in and say no 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 you're okay you don't get you, you don't understand you're fine this is all normal this happens all the time instead the angels come to him and really uh, confirm Isaiah's predicament. Either when he encounters the holiness of God, either he will die or he will need to be cleansed. I think as we sit with this image of an all-consuming fire, there's something that rings true there. Either we will die or we will need to be cleansed. And so Isaiah, in verse 6, says, One of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand. She had taken with tongs from the altar. with it he touched my mouth, and see, said, "See, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for." Death or cleansing when we encounter the holiness of God, these seem to be the only answer to the truly terrifying, all-consuming fire that occurs when God's holiness draws near. And yet, if you return to me with our passage in First Peter, Peter's not playing by any different rules when he writes to us about resilient faith in an urban soil. But instead, if you look with me at verse 18, Peter's going to say, knowing that you were ransomed from your feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without a spot or blemish. Peter's looking at the same vision of God's holiness, and yet Peter sees what we have heard proclaimed in the Easter season, that here at this altar, at this cross, Christ himself offers for us the purifying fire, the purifying cleansing of his own blood. That in Christ, just as Isaiah was so overwhelmed by the holiness of God that he knew he needed to be cleansed, so you and I, when we're called to encounter a holy God, we are invited ourselves to be cleansed through the blood of Christ as we face this all-consuming fire, death or cleansing. And yet, if it's possible this morning that you've perhaps heard this invitation before, I think for some of us, when it comes to holiness, we're really wrestling with this invitation from Peter. For some of us, we have perhaps been cleansed. We've received the cleansing of Christ. We have accepted and embraced the gift that Christ's cross and death and perfect blood offers us. And yet for us, far more often the struggle is that we start to lose connectivity to the holiness of this all-consuming fire of God. In fact, if you think about fire, um, if you have ever had a chance to go near a blazing, blazing fireplace, or perhaps even if you've been outside at a campground somewhere and just encountered a truly magnificent bonfire. This really interesting thing happens. You start to draw near and before you even touch the flames, you start to take on the property of the fire. You start to grow warm. If you ever left your feet by a fireplace and you kind of forgotten about them for a few minutes and you reach down and touch your sock, you notice your socks are burning hot, even though they haven't yet entered the fire i think the concept of holiness as it's pictured here in 1st peter really works like that that as we draw near this all consuming fire of god's holiness having been cleansed by christ we actually start to receive the heat of holiness ourselves we actually start getting warm we actually start taking on the warmth of the fire and so as i close reflecting on this pastor i want to offer you three fires that I think the New Testament is really clear on, that can actually offer us the heat of God's holiness. Three fires that we're invited to draw near to, to be warmed ourselves with the holiness of God. First invitation for you is this. Draw near to the fire of the Holy Word. Draw near to the fire of the Holy Word. If you look with me at First Peter one to 22-25, the end of our passage, Peter says this, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and its glory like the flowers of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And the word is good news that was preached to you. First invitation is to draw near to the fire of Holy Word. I, I think Peter here is really trying to capture our imagination, saying so many other invitations, so many other things in your life are just simply perishable. They're going to fade away. But this word, this fire of God's revelation of himself given to us in the scriptures, this word is living and abiding. It actually wants to heat us. It wants to come inside us. It, it wants to be good news for us good news that guides and directs us into obedience, that guides and directs us into how we choose to live and act and be in the world. And yet for some of us, I wouldn't be surprised here if the fire of the Holy Word at times has not been somewhat painful for you. Perhaps you have had an experience where someone has wielded the Word of God in such a way that they've left you burned. Or perhaps for some of you, there is a deep sense of unsafeness to the Word of God. That There's those passages or perhaps those places in the Bible that just really don't make you feel comfortable. They seem a little hot. They seem a little out of control. So if you, this morning, perhaps for any number of reasons, find yourself struggling with the heat of the Holy Word, I want to invite you to just take a step and draw near its warmth. Just take a step in drawing near its warmth. There's a person recently at Church of the Resurrection who I got to hear their story, and uh, they were just sharing that the first time they came out to Church of the Resurrection, they wanted nothing to do with the Bible. They'd been burned before. And yet, as they came to Resurrection, they saw that we were gonna use the lectionary, that the word of God was gonna be read, and so they thought to themselves, all right, I'll give them the lectionary. I'll sit through it. I won't walk out. I'll just sit here and let the lectionary happen. And that went on for a couple weeks, and... Then as they started to grow more comfortable with that, they said, well, you know, they keep preaching on a passage. Maybe I'll open my bulletin and look at the passage being preached on. I think I can handle that. I don't want to do any more, but that maybe I could handle. So they started opening their bulletin. Well, then as they started opening their bulletin, they started to say, you know, I probably need to get a Bible. Like, I, I maybe need to pick one of these up again. It's been a long time. Maybe I should get a Bible. And then as they sat with that, they said, you know, I... I kind of want to know what's going on in this book again. Like, it's kind of been a while. I wonder, I'll open it from time to time throughout the course of my week. And when I got to talk to them, they had just in the last two weeks bought a Bible, and for the first time in years, had slowly begun reading it again from themselves. What I love about this story, even as I heard it from them, is that it was a completely honest story, and it wasn't forcing anyone into the heart of a fire. No one's going to throw you in to the middle of God's burning word. But instead, feeling this discontent in their soul, being honest about the pain and the questions that they had, they just slowly took one step at a time, drawing near to the heat, drawing near to the warmth of God's holy word, and started to warm them. For me, my confession is that I have often struggled uh, since coming to study at Moody Bible Institute with memorizing scripture. I was Raised in a Christian family, my parents always forced me to memorize Bible verses. And by the time I got to college, went to seminary, I'm memorizing Hebrew and Greek paradigms. I'm just sitting there thinking, you know, I don't have time for this. I'm not really going to memorize. What what does it really do for me? And yet, with years now, space from school, uh, just this last Lenten season, I started to wonder to myself, what if as I'm driving to work, what if I could pause the podcasts, I've inevitably been listening to. And what if I just, on the drive into work, take time to memorize one psalm? Just one psalm. So I chose Psalm 6, kind of arbitrarily. And Psalm 6 begins, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Those are harsh words as I first read them. And yet, as I'm memorizing the psalm, these words just keep repeating over and over in my head. Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. And then as my days started to go along, as my weeks started to go along, I started to find myself over and over again with these words just coming to mind. Oh, Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. And I'd be laying down to go to sleep at night, and where before I would have been anxious, I'd just have these words come to mind. Rebuke me not in your anger, Lord, nor discipline me in your wrath. And it, it was like the craziest thing began to happen. Almost like the heat of God's holiness through his word was starting to warm my heart from the inside out, almost like I couldn't get away from the holiness of God with these words that were becoming deeply ingrained into my mind. I wonder for you this morning, did you hear Peter's invitation to be holy as God is holy? I wonder for you if there is an invitation to take a step nearer to the fire of the Holy Word. My second invitation for you is this, to draw near the fire of of the holy table, draw near the fire of the holy table. Now, I realize Peter does not talk here in this passage explicitly about communion, about Eucharist, and I realize it's a very Anglican leap for me to do, to jump uh, to the Eucharist, and yet, if you look with me at verse 13, I was really wrestling with this, Peter says in verse 13, now, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace of that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set your mind fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As you hear those words of Peter, I have a hard time understanding a better way to respond to his words than to come to the holy table, than to come to this table where we receive the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, where we remember his death and resurrection, where we're nourished and strengthened at Jesus's table, uh, there was a season for me as I graduated college, where I was really struggling with some cynicism, some doubt, some despair, uh, and as I was wrestling with all these questions that I had, all of these problems, even with the scriptures, problem with God, problem with the world, uh, I really started to find that sermons were hard to listen to. So I say that apologizing to any of you now who are sitting here with sermons being hard to listen to, and yet as so going through that season, I started to find uh, myself and my wife going to an Anglican church, and we started receiving the Eucharist. And just as I started experiencing heat as I drew near the Holy Word, during the season, I started to experience the heat of God's holiness as I would come forward and receive the bread, and receive the wine. It was like every time I received, I didn't have to place my doubts forward. I didn't have to solve any of the conundrums I was wrestling with. Things didn't all my problems didn't have to go away. The, the grief and the pain that I was wrestling with didn't have to disappear. But I simply could come forward and receive the holiness of God here at God's holy table. And so, again, for you as well, I wonder if this morning, if there isn't some heat that you need in your life from the holiness of this table. If there isn't some heat that God isn't inviting you to receive as you bring forth any doubts, as you bring forth any pain, as you bring forth any grief, questions that you're wrestling with. Final invitation for us is to draw near the fire of the Holy Spirit. Peter, who wrote our letter of 1 Peter to those living in exile, of course, had his own experience, his own encounter with the fire of the Holy Spirit. However, it's easy for us to forget that Peter, the same person writing this letter Is the same author who not only once, not only twice, but three times would deny his very friend and mentor and savior explicitly, repeatedly, vehemently on the very night that Jesus needed Peter most. I mean, Peter saw the holiness of God in a way that few of us had, and Peter at one point denied it, at one point rejected it, at one point pushed it away. Yeah, of course, Peter's story was far from over. Peter and Jesus would meet after Jesus' resurrection. Jesus would encourage Peter. He'd strengthen him. He'd restore him. Yet Peter had still not yet been filled with the fire of the Holy Spirit. He'd not yet been strengthened and equipped for the work ahead. So, of course, this moment comes in the book of Acts. We're going to celebrate in just a few weeks' time. Where Acts 2, 2 2-4 says, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. It was the fire of the Holy Spirit that rested on Peter. It was, of course, the all-consuming fire of the holiness of God, filling Peter with power, with mission for his task. And it was in the power, and perhaps even in the healing of this heat for Peter That he would step forth and proclaim this restored message of good news, of resurrection to his friends. In fact, the same message that he proclaims to us in this letter. Peter was filled with the heat, the fire of the Holy Spirit. So, my friends, as I close, I just wonder for you this morning, do you need to draw near to the heat of God's holiness, to the fire of his holy word? the fire of his holy table or the fire of his holy spirit. I love that at this church, the word is proclaimed, the table is celebrated, and even here on the side, there's going to be prayer ministers in just a few moments that are going to invite you to come forward if you're in need of your own healing, if you're in need of your own heat, if you're longing for an encounter with this holiness of God. But it's possible just as God's holiness warms us that you and I at times can grow cold, times, you and I can separate ourselves from the heat of God's fire. And so this morning, I just want to invite you to take a step nearer to the flame of God's holiness, whichever of those three is speaking to you. The flame, the fire of God's holy word, the fire of his holy table, the fire of his holy spirit. And in stepping near that fire, my friends, you and I will begin to see that we are becoming holy, even as our God is holy. In the name of the Father,